support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. And also today, it's about grilling. Well, grilling. You'll see what I mean. Look, it's summer. It's warm out. It's grilling season. And it turns out the business of grilling is booming. Just a couple weeks ago, a company called Traeger, which makes $2,000 Wi-Fi-enabled pellet smokers, filed for an IPO with a placeholder valuation of $100 million. And just a couple days ago, Weber, which makes the classic Weber charcoal grill, also filed for an IPO, which Bloomberg estimates at a $4 to $6 billion valuation. Like I said, grilling season. But if your TikTok algorithm is anything like mine, you know that Weber and Traeger are not necessarily the hottest thing in cooking outside. In fact, grills might be out, and griddling is in. That's griddling is in on a griddle, a large flat sheet of metal like you might find in a diner or a hibachi restaurant. And the company behind the griddle revolution is called Blackstone Products, is in the Blackstone Griddle. I first came across Blackstone Griddles on TikTok last year, just as the pandemic lockdowns were starting. And there's this caption I kept seeing on all these videos of people smashing burgers and making pancakes outside. I finally got a Blackstone. Finally, 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 20 minutes ago, I hadn't even heard about this thing and now I was late to a trend. So, okay, I ran out and I bought a Blackstone. And I gotta tell you, we haven't used our regular grill in over a year. We use the Blackstone for everything. I completely get it. And so do lots of other people. There are Blackstone Facebook groups, there's a Blackstone subreddit, there are YouTubers running entire channels dedicated to griddles. They unbox new models, they do the whole thing. It's a phenomenon. So of course, I wanted to know, where did Blackstone come from? What's it like to have a product go viral on TikTok in the middle of a pandemic, especially when that product is made of steel and weighs like 120 pounds? We started looking into it, and it turns out the Blackstone story is deeply connected to almost all the themes that come up on Decoder every week. The CEO of Blackstone Products is named Roger Dolly. He's a longtime entrepreneur based in Logan, Utah, who sketched up the idea for an outdoor griddle in his spare time. He's the inventor. His name is on the patents. He found a manufacturing partner in China, and they started selling the first griddles in local hardware stores in the early 2000s. And just like any other startup, he spent years trying to find product market fit. And as things took off, they had to make decisions about selling direct to consumer or going through traditional retail channels, about working with Amazon, all the rest. 
And just like any other startup, we talked about Blackstone's ability to generate recurring revenue and how the Griddle itself is a platform for a variety of additional products and services, some of which might be made by competitors. And Blackstone has big competitors in Weber and Cuisinart and all the rest. So we talked about competition and branding and customer loyalty and going up against the biggest players in a space. You know, decoder stuff. Of course, we also talked about social media and the creator economy. Blackstone has a dedicated social media marketing staff. They run a lot of Facebook ads, of course. But the company also employs on-staff influencers to run its YouTube and TikTok accounts. And it makes cooking TV shows that it distributes on its own Roku and Fire TV apps. This is a full-on dedicated media operation in the middle of an outdoor cooking company. And while the investment looks big, you'd be surprised. Roger told me that old-fashioned TV advertising is still where the company sees the best return, although that's changing. If I sound kind of surprised, it's because I thought we were going to do like a fun, silly summer episode about grilling. And Roger and I ended up going deep on some of the wonkiest things that come up on the show week after week. Roger thinks climate change regulation might impact propane products. So Blackstone developed two electric griddles. And that means the company is now affected by the chip shortage. I keep saying in our production meetings that every company is a tech company. And this conversation is like the ultimate proof. Seriously, it might be one of my favorite episodes yet. Roger Dolly, CEO of Blackstone Products. Here we go. Roger Daly, you're the CEO of Blackstone Products. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you. It's uh, it's nice to have you here. Blackstone, it's a product that has gone viral on YouTube and TikTok. Your company is pretty young. It's, it's not been around for a long time. Give people a sense of what Blackstone Products is and what the Blackstone Griddle is. We refer to ourselves as an outdoor cooking appliance company. We specialize in making only griddles, which is a flat top grill. Some people call them flat tops. We market and sell our products through US-based retailers, Walmart, Lowe's, Depot, Dick's Sporting Goods. We have a wide variety of customers that we sell to and a little bit direct to the consumer on our own website and direct to the consumer through a lot of those other retailers' websites and Amazon. I was doing some research on Blackstone before you came on. I found some of your patents. You're listed as the inventor of a lot of different elements of the Blackstone griddle. Tell me how that went. Were you in the garage hammering out griddle tops? And you're like, this is a product. Did the light bulb go off? The heavens open? Give me a sense of start to finish here. I really got inspired with the idea years ago. Even as a young boy, the first time I saw a flat top griddle being used was with my dad. And every year he would take me to the local Lions Club 4th of July breakfast that they cooked on homemade, I guess you could call them, griddles. And these were big pieces of steel that guys figured out how to put fire underneath it and heat it up and cook breakfast on. And I always thought that was neat. And then as I got older, in my local community, I noticed that for large family gatherings, for Boy Scout events, um, just family parties, people who wanted to cook breakfast, somehow they were getting these big griddles. And and they weren't commercial ones coming out of restaurants. They were mainly homemade or just made at some welding shop. Later in life, as I got into my career and started doing what I'm doing, I again was intrigued by griddles. 
but you couldn't go to a store anywhere and buy them. And so in the back of my mind, I always had this idea, somebody needs to make a griddle that you can go buy at the store so you can cook breakfast on it. And that's really what got me started with it. Did you make the first prototype at home? Did you hire designers? How did that process come about? Well, the first one that I made was on a yellow notepad with a a ruler and my pencil. And I kind of sketched it out and got it as big as I wanted it to be. 36 inches seemed to be a really nice size by 20 inches deep. At the time, I had started my own business in marketing products to retailers, and we were always trying to come up with new ideas. I'm a habitual uh, entrepreneur, if you will. And so we're always coming up with ideas, and I I had this griddle in the back of my mind, so I drew it up on a piece of paper. At the time, I had a, a guy working for me who traveled to China and did our sourcing for us on other product lines. I said, go over there and find me a factory that could build this thing for me. Explained what I want. And it took about a year of sourcing a good factory and finding the right one and prototypes going back and forth. And at the time, I didn't have any inside engineering, so I was relying on my factories in China to get that done. And a year later, we finally had the first griddle. What year was that? That is probably going back to about 2003, 2005. And when's your first one go on sale? The first ones that we sold was to a local retailer in Salt Lake City in Utah called Sportsman's Warehouse. At the time, they had about 75 stores. And they're kind of a hunting, camping, outdoor type company. So it seemed that it would fit for them because it is somewhat portable and a little bit easier to move around than a traditional gas grill. So we figured people could take it to camp or Boy Scouts or, or things like that. And they were the first customer to buy it. And that was probably 2006. So this is a part of a story. I don't know if you watch as many music documentaries as I do, but I watch a lot of them. And there's a part of the story that is always missed. And we're right at it with you right now, where a band is like, we formed a band and then we wrote a song. And then they're like, and then we were on tour and we were the biggest band in the world. And that act two is always missing. So I want to explore that with you a little bit. So you make your first product, you're selling it locally, 2005, 2006. It's 2021, and you have a massive product line. You have different products in all kinds of different stores. You're viral on TikTok, which is hilarious to me. What happened in the middle there? Was it just a slow build? Was it the product went viral on TikTok during the pandemic and it exploded? Give me a sense of that run-up. At the time, I was running other businesses that I was involved with, and I I like to call that time frame an incubation period for Blackstone. I knew it was a great product. There was no question in my mind, this is an item that needs to be at retail. The other thing that was unique for me is it was the first chance I had to really create a brand because all the products I was doing at that time were private label or celebrity endorsed or somebody else's brand and we were just selling them to retailers because I had a lot of strength in that area and good relationships. But Blackstone was always there, and it took a while for it to really catch on, right? Because people who cook food outside traditionally think that your steak has to have sear lines on it for it to taste good. So we had to fight that perception. Number two, no one had ever heard of Blackstone, and a lot of people still haven't heard of Blackstone. So building our brand was important. We were cooking a different way. That was different, and that took time for the customer to perceive that. Even though everybody walks up to a griddle and goes, oh, that's cool. I've never seen that before. Where can I get one? So a lot of those things were happening as we just kind of incubated along. 
The other thing that was really challenging is who was going to sell this product? Where did it fit? I would show up at retailers where I thought it would make a lot of sense, like some of the hardware channels, and they'd look at it and they'd say, uh, that looks too much like a sporting goods product. And we don't have sporting goods in our chain, so we can't sell that. It's not a traditional gas grill. So I would go to sporting goods retailers and they'd say, that's too big for us. It won't fit on the shelf. You need to go show that to lawn and garden buyers. And I'd go to lawn and garden buyers and they'd say, yeah, that looks like sporting goods. So it's kind of like a kid getting tossed back and forth between mom and dad and no one giving them an answer. So that's really what happened in the middle there. And it really took time to get it out in front of the consumer and make them aware, number one, of this style of cooking and number two, of our brand. And it, and it wasn't really the pandemic that did that or TikTok. It was really we started doing TV advertising. I'd spent some time in the infomercial world and had a few of those stripes on my back from learning hard lessons. And so I brought in some people who knew a lot about TV advertising and marketing. And I said, I'm going to spend money on TV. I don't care if I lose money. I want to advertise my brand and I want to advertise our style of cooking. And I didn't even have, to this day, we don't even have an 800 number to call an order. It's just informational, drive people to our website, which drives them to Amazon, which drives them to walmart.com, depot.com, all the websites. And they gather more information and then they figure out where to go make a purchasing decision. So really in 2015 is where I look to as really our, where we really started to resonate with the end user customer and they really started to learn about Blackstone. So there was a good seven, eight years in there where I was incubating the product, keeping it alive, but the revenue that it generated during that time frame was not enough as a standalone company, not even close. But when I finally got the product launched with enough retailers that it made sense, I divested myself of all my other business interested and focused 100% on Blackstone, and that was 2015. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is to talk about your social media strategy. What you've described is a pretty traditional product strategy, product distribution strategy. You made something good, you worked at it for several years, you put it into traditional retailers. You're trying to innovate and stay ahead of competitors. It's a huge product, and that is married to a very innovative social media approach, social marketing approach. You hire a YouTuber to come and be Blackstone's own YouTuber and run your own channel. How much social media marketing do you do? We do a lot. We post um, videos and and recipes every day. Is that your team? Do you have videographers and photographers and, and all those folks on staff? So you run a, a YouTube channel. We do. We have a culinary trained chef on staff. He lives in Florida, but he also has a unique set of skills in that he is a phenomenal behind-the-camera guy editing and, and everything else that goes along with that. So he helps in a lot of ways besides being a chef and cooking for us every day. He does a phenomenal job behind the scenes. We have another influencer that's on staff, a full-time employee of the company, and he travels around and does road shows at different retailers, does uh, uh, the Griddlemore tour with Walmart. So we have a wide variety of people that have come to us naturally by being engaged with the brand on their own online. And then we watched those sites and then contacted those people at a point in time and they became part of the team. So you, you're watching the influencer economy, seeing who's popping up, making content with your griddle. And then at some point you look and say, you should just come work here. 
and do this for us. Yeah, that's part of it. That's definitely happened in the past. What was the trigger for you to say, actually, you should just come do this in-house? Kind of the combination of of developing a relationship with these individuals and, uh, you know, them taking the initiative on their own to do these kind of things. And then us contacting them. A lot of times they would contact us. And just over time, the relationships developed and it turned into kind of what it is today. Do you seed products to other influencers? Do you buy branded content from other YouTube creators? Because there's a whole other side of how social marketing works. Are you involved in that stuff? Just a little bit, not much. One of the things we cover a lot is the quote-unquote creator economy. And we often cover the the creator side of it, where they're taking the money in. You represent the money going out, right? Like you're going to spend money on creators and influencers in order to see a return in the form of higher sales. So do you think about all the other products that the influencer economy can offer you, like product integrations, branded content, all that stuff? Roger smiled a lot just now. We think about everything, right? We consider all options and all opportunities as they present themselves to us. But, you know, we're just pretty simple. We're just driving a brand. We're watching our social media every single day. We're using the influence that we can. When we spend money, it's for advertising. It's not necessarily for uh, creating huge numbers of followers, if that makes sense. We don't spend money doing that. We spend money advertising our brand and what you can cook on a Blackstone and how fun it is. And everything else drives behind that just naturally. How much are you invested in into platforms? You said you have a videographer, you have a chef, you have photographers. Do you think of that as your YouTube team? Do you think of that as your TikTok team? Or are they responsible for all the platforms? For all of the platforms. Where do you see your best return? Yeah, it's kind of it kind of changes over time. They've all done well. TikTok has just exploded, you know, over the last 12 months. It's just gone nuts. But as far as as driving revenue back to the company, probably Facebook right now. And that's Facebook targeted ads, that Facebook content, Instagram. What is that? Both, all. You're buying a lot of targeted ads on Facebook and presumably on Instagram, but you're also making content and you think all that has an equivalent return for you? It does, yeah. Up until really the last year and a half, we hardly spent any money on social media. All of it was aimed and spent on TV marketing. And our TV marketing budget was X, but we always spent X minus because we'd run out of inventory. I don't want to advertise on TV when I can't supply it and just make customers mad. So we pulled back on TV advertising every year for the last three and a half, four years. And we've made a directional change in that we're starting to split that budget up less on TV, more on social media. And like I said earlier, over time, I see that the majority of our spend will probably be on social media, but I'll still do TV traditional advertising. The other thing that we've done is kind of gone to the streaming services, the OTT stuff, and we're creating our own content there to put on those channels. We have a relationship with a guy named Bruce Mitchell. He's the alligator man. He was on Discovery And he was one of those swamp people that would go and catch alligators. And (laughs) Bruce contacted us. And we just love Bruce Mitchell. He's just awesome. And we've created now, I think we've got two shows done, two or three shows done that that we're streaming on uh, Amazon Fire Stick and Roku. And it's him. It's just him going out and doing his thing and cooking food and being Bruce. And 
Blackstone is, again, subtly advertised in the background as the product that he cooks the frogs that he catches and puts them on the Blackstone or the crawfish or the alligator. And it's him. He's just real life living in the swamps in Louisiana. And it's it's awesome. We love that kind of content because he's a real guy. So walking through that deal, are you paying to produce that show or are you just paying an integration fee? We pay ourselves. We're producing the show with our in-house people. Okay. So you're producing the show and then did you have to go and get Amazon Prime distribution or did you just make an app for these platforms? Just make an app for the platforms. So one of the things that's really interesting about that is, you know, all those platforms want to cut if you do advertising in those apps. So again, in the larger tech context, NBC, Peacock, and Roku fought for a while about the terms of advertising delivery on the Roku platform. Do you have? Do, are you having those conversations with Roku? Or are you just saying this is our app? It's got our product integrated with it. It's not traditional advertising. You can't even take a cut of this. Uh, we, that hasn't come up yet, so I, I, I guess that's what we're doing. <laughs> that's it's just it's fascinating, right? I mean, I, I again, the reason I wanted to have you on the show was here's a company that sells a huge physical product, but they play in all of the digital spaces that we usually talk about, and they run into some of the same problems. And then clearly, in the case of a Roku app, you're just doing it, and that's a different kind of advertising, and it hasn't. It hasn't caused any of the problems that we usually see. And I think that push and pull is fascinating to me because it, I think it's coming for every company. I agree with that. It's definitely coming. But there again, what's our motive for doing that, right? Obviously, we want people to be more exposed to the brand and to the product. And what a great way to do it because Bruce definitely has a following of millions of people who watch his show and who follow him and watch him and everything that he does. And it's authentic. It's, this is not staged. This is not fake. This is just him out doing his thing. And if we can stay true to our brand in that fashion, we're going to be successful. Did you pay a third-party company to make that app? No, we just did it. You just you figured out how to code a Roku app and you're off to the races? Yeah, yeah. Who ma- like This is fascinating to me. Who maintains it? Who does software updates for that app? We do in-house. You've got an app that requires software development. You're producing a TV show that runs on an app. You've got Facebook, which is where you're seeing your best return is. You've got a team of people making YouTube videos. You've got TikTok, where it seems like there's a lot of awareness, but maybe not a lot of return. How do you balance that set of investments? Uh, This is not a sophisticated answer, and you may cringe at my answer, but it's just really kind of a gut shot feel, in all honesty. We, We know that if we go out and do the right thing, the customer's gonna look at and say, oh, that wasn't staged. They're not doing this to try to get back in my pocketbook. And that's kind of breaks all the rules for advertising and social media spend, right? You're trying to look at ROI and all, you know, we spent 50 bucks, we better generate 150 in sales and all of these kind of numbers. I've just kind of thrown that all out the window. I'm gonna spend this much money on my marketing and we've gotta figure out the best way to get our message out to our customer. That's how we do it. We have a certain amount of money to invest in our marketing efforts, and we're going to go spend that money. Tell me specifically about TikTok, though. You said it's gone crazy in the last year and a half. I think that's certainly where I came across the product. It is a viral sensation on TikTok. Is that generating a lot of return for you? It's kind of hard to figure that out because here's an interesting thing. Every year we do a market 
survey with end users of our product and people who've never heard of us before. And we ask a lot of questions and we get that research back. We get our net promoter score that way, so on and so forth. What we found last year was truly fascinating. With all the money I've spent on television and all the money we've spent on social media, guess which is the number one way people are hearing about Blackstone? Is it still Facebook? Word of mouth. Word of mouth. Word of mouth. And so I got to believe that TikTok with hundred and almost 80,000 followers now, that's word of mouth, right? So that's the number one way people are hearing about our product. It really, quite honestly, surprised us as well. But if that's the case, I'll continue to spend money on these platforms because people are talking about us. They're watching us. They're watching people cook food. They want to try that recipe. They're intrigued by it. And then the other thing that happens all the time Somebody buys a Blackstone, like you, you have some friends and neighbors over, you cook food for them, and they're like, oh my gosh, that was the coolest, what is that thing? Where'd you get that? There again is our word of mouth that's, that's kicking in for us in a huge way. So, I, you know, again, it's my total budget spend for marketing that I, that I think really drives all of these things. And so that's my return on my investment, is my total sales for the company is really the way I look at it. Do you take product feedback from social media, from comments, from user groups? Is that integrated into the way that you think? 24-7, absolutely. I mean, we see product development on social media. Our customers get to what they need for a Blackstone sometimes before we do. We're catching up because I've, I've hired a lot of people in product development, and we're catching up and getting ahead. But there's a lot of creative people in this country, and they'll buy a product and tweak it and make it better and come up with a cool idea. And it's awesome. And so, yeah, we watch social media a lot. What's an idea that you've taken from the user community that you've integrated into the product? Basting domes was one that comes right to mind. Um, a lot of people would go out and buy a cheap aluminum cake pan, if you will, and use it as a basting dome. We knew that we needed that product, but the users got to it first. Different spatulas, some of them have quite a bit of flexibility in them. Some of them are quite stiff. Chefs use those for different reasons. That's very disciplined. One of the things that the users came out with is when you're done cooking on a griddle, you don't want to leave it exposed to the elements. And we sell soft covers, you know, fabric covers that cover them. But rain can eventually leak through and, and moisture can get through. So our users started just bending sheet metal and making a lid to go on top of the griddle after use. We refer to them as a hardcover. That was another one that really came from our users that we watched on social media. How does that dynamic work? Is it you or is it formalized? Is it someone slacks you as the CEO and says, hey, look at this YouTube video. We've, we've got to get in on this. A, a little bit. But what's interesting is of the, the employees here are great researchers for us. It doesn't matter if they're in accounting or if they're in customer service, but our warehouse staff, our accounting staff, our obviously product development staff, our sales teams, everybody gathers information. We're all really, really passionate about our brand and about our product line. And so we're always, we got 200 people always looking online at our competitors, the industry, cooking, what's cool, what's motivating us. We all look at it all the time. One of the big trends in the industry right now is consolidation across every category I can think of. Have the Webers and Traegers of the world come to you and said, hey, we want to acquire Blackstone and give you a lot of money and let you grow as fast as you can? <laughs> we definitely have been noticed by the investment community. Venture capitalists 
call quite frequently. Lots of different groups have called quite frequently. I can think of one VC who tweets about his Blackstone like three times a week. Yeah, I might know him. He's probably called me. Yeah, we've definitely had conversations with folks in the past, but uh, as far as what's what's in our future, I I know what motivates me, and I know that I'm going to stick around and keep and keep doing this for a number of years. Uh, I'm, I, I have no desire to retire, or take a pile of cash, and sit on a beach someplace. That's about the most boring thing I could think of. Do you have investors right now? Uh, no. So you're entirely bootstrapped. That you're putting cash into it until you grew into a sustainable company. That's all. That's all money that was coming from your other ventures or from you? From me, and I do have a partner. I have my manufacturer in China is actually my partner. They're Taiwanese. And so we have a great partnership. It's worked really, really well. And they've helped a lot with the financing of the growth. So right along the same lines, can't help but notice Weber, which is privately held right now, filed for an IPO earlier this week. I think last week, Traeger filed for an IPO. Are you headed in that direction? Do you want to run a public company? I don't know the answer to that question right now. We've definitely had conversations about that as a possibility. It exists as a possibility is probably how I'd state that as of today. But you don't have investors. so Do you feel any pressure to do that? Or is that, here's how I'd go raise more capital to build out whatever product line? No, I I don't have any pressure in that direction. My Chinese partners, my Taiwanese partners... It's a father and a son team, and and dad is about 75 years old. He is ready to retire. And his son, who is who I work with on a daily basis, is early 40s, and he has no desire to retire and wants to keep going together with me. But dad wants to retire, and so there's conversations about how do we let dad take his chips off the table and let him retire financially. So we're having those conversations right now. There's a lot of options on how we can accomplish that, and we're exploring those options as we speak. One of the more direct ways for any company to grow is to expand markets. Are you in all the markets you want to be in? Do you want to go fully international? Oh, no, we'll definitely go international. I just don't have the bandwidth right now to get us there. But we have customers call us all the time from foreign countries. We are expanding right now into the Middle East, which is interesting, but they have a lot of similarities with big family groups and family gatherings and cooking as an event. So we'll expand there. Across the border into Mexico, we have a lot of demand for our product there because again, a Blackstone fits an ethnic style of food. It's really one of the cool things about our product is we are so diverse in our in our demographic. We are doing okay in Canada, but we need to expand there. In fact, we just hired an international sales manager, first one in the company this week. So within a year, within two years, within five years, I expect us to have a pretty nice presence worldwide. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. 
Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back. As I said in the intro, this conversation was really surprising. And in this next part of the conversation, we talk about Roger's relationship with Amazon. He's actually pretty happy with it, which is not something I usually hear from hardware companies. We also talked about how Roger thinks about recurring revenue in ecosystem lock-in. And it was not what I'm used to hearing about. Because the griddle isn't software. He can't just prioritize a better experience with his spatulas. Blackstone just has to make better spatulas. And while they're dipping a toe into consumable products, Roger's not going to sell you a subscription to your grill. He just wants to sell you spices that won't burn as easily. Okay, more with Roger Dolly. You started your marketing push in TV infomercials. But I hear some of the keywords you're using, direct-to-consumer, social influencers. A lot of the CEOs I talk to on the show, that's their whole business. They're direct-to-consumer. They don't want an Amazon relationship. They don't want a Walmart relationship. They certainly don't want to do TV advertising. They're all doing content marketing. You're, you're doing both. Why, why both? Why deal with the big retailers when you have now a product that is doing well in word of mouth, you have a big social operation? Why pay the fees to all the retailers out there? Why do the traditional kinds of deals? Our industry and our category is, is still mainly sold at brick-and-mortar retail outdoor cooking. And I suspect maybe over time that trend will flip like a lot of other trends have flipped. But but right now, a high majority of our product, and that's true for me, that's true for Weber, for all outdoor cooking products, is sold at brick-and-mortar retail. There are a few companies out there who only have a direct-to-consumer model, but they're smaller businesses in, in this category. So we're going to continue to support our retailers and drive our customer to their locations to pick the product up and buy it. Our boxes are big and heavy. They're difficult to ship. Some of the items are difficult to assemble, and a lot of retailers offer those services, delivery set up, and take all the packaging away, so that's a big advantage for them. But we are, we are definitely seeing, and I think this part was helped by the pandemic, where the direct-to-the-consumer business is picking up in our industry. Do you have the same conflicted relationship with Amazon that we hear from so many small companies that your product starts to sell well on Amazon and 20 minutes later there's an Amazon basics griddle that's outranking you in search at every opportunity? Amazon is definitely challenging, but again, it's a relationship that I really like and it's one that I need to develop further, quite frankly, so that we avoid some of those issues hardest thing for me about Amazon is, is everybody can sell anything they want on Amazon. As where a retailer, once you, you know, a brick and mortar retailer, once you've gained selection with your product line, they add and take away on an annualized basis. But with Amazon, a competitor can pop up 24-7, and, and they do. 
So to me, that's probably the biggest challenge with Amazon is just dealing with all the little knockoff guys that just flourish on Amazon. They watch us like a hawk and they watch other consumer products and they're very creative and they come up fast and they, they a lot of them um, violate our patents and we have a hard time even running some of these small companies down because they just don't exist someplace. So that that's definitely a challenge with Amazon, but it's, you know, every retailer has its challenge and you just have to deal with it and figure it out. Do you think Amazon is responsive enough to you around the like, here's stuff that's a direct knockoff of our patented products? They're helpful. I'd like them to be a little more aggressive, but I'd like everybody to be a little bit more aggressive. <laughs> I'm pretty passionate about my patents and they're like, you know, have your attorney call and we'll figure it out. But well, you mentioned that, you know, the beginning of all this was you were, you had a background in marketing to retail. You have all these relationships. I'm assuming that your relationships with some of the traditional retailers are maybe a little bit more personal and direct than Amazon, where the common complaint is it's a black box and I can't get anybody on the phone. What is that dynamic like? Um, we actually have a pretty good relationship with Amazon management and they turn frequently, you know, in categories. You mean the, the people turn over in the categories? Yeah, yeah. They'll get promoted or move on to the next category. I think it's maybe part of their development for their merchandising team and their employees in general. But right now, we have good relationships with management at Amazon that I'm actually quite happy about. Do you see that social marketing effort generating a bigger return than the traditional marketing efforts? It's flipping to that right now. I was counseled by a lot of people not to do traditional TV marketing and advertising, but I believed in it. And I think it really helped our brand initially when we started it. But just this last year, really maybe the last 18 months, we're starting to flip our ad budget spend more to social marketing. So I see that trend for us headed definitely in that direction. But every industry is a little bit different and every category of product is a little bit different on how it reacts to the social marketing versus traditional TV spend. I came across Blackstone as a product of, of social marketing and influencer marketing, not as a product of television marketing. The phrase that really tipped me off was I saw a TikTok and the caption was, I finally got a Blackstone. And I was like, I heard about this thing 25 minutes ago. And now there's a community that's like, I finally got one. There's a really active subreddit of people who get the product and they just post a picture of it and everyone congratulates them. Like you finally made the jump over to this category of product. And that all feels very digital to me, very modern. And all of the companies that are doing that are very focused on direct-to-consumer businesses. The classic example I use is the toothbrush companies are like, here's the one toothbrush you'll need for the rest of your life. And then they're going to go buy a million podcast ads and Instagram spots and whatever. And I'm listeners of Decoder know that I'm a sucker for every Instagram ad. So it works on me at least. You've got a huge product. Like you said, it's heavy, it's big. And then you've got different models in every different store because that's presumably what the retailers are demanding of you. So Walmart has different models than Lowe's has different models than Home Depot has different models than Ace Hardware. That seems like a lot of complexity to manage. And I'm wondering if that cost is worth the ancillary benefits that you might see. Or if simplifying and saying we're going all in on direct consumer, which is, I would say, what a lot of the newer company CEOs that come on the show tell me is the future. You've just got a different answer. So I'm wondering where you see that split. 
Well, as far as diversifying our product line and selling those different product lines to different retail customers, that's definitely part of our distribution strategy and go-to-market strategy for sure. But it's also mainly driven by demand from our customers. And everything we do is focused 100% on what our end-user customer is demanding, not so much what the retail customer is demanding. For example, we have retail customers who hate looking at a propane tank. They want a cabinet. They want storage. They want doors and drawers. And for a long, long time, we didn't offer that to our end-user customer. And so we've started offering cabinet units at a little bit higher retail price points, and they've been extremely successful. And we'll continue to move in that direction with product development. And it just lends itself for different retail selling price points to differentiate that to different type of retailers who have those type of customers. So again, for me, it's really driven by what my end user wants. And then we build those products and see where they fit. And it naturally works itself into a nice strategy of go to market at retail. The other trend that comes up on this show and on The Verge all the time is recurring revenue. And I would commend you and thank you for not saddling me with some subscription to my griddle. (laughs) But almost every other kind of hardware startup we come across is like, we're going to sell you the griddle and then we're going to sell you steak pods. And you've got to buy a subscription to steak pods because they want to make sure I pay some money over time to them. You don't have that model. There's a universe of accessories that you make, which I'm assuming are relatively high margin. There's spatulas and spray bottles and things. How do you solve that part of the puzzle when you're selling kind of one big expensive item and then the consumer might walk away? We have the greatest answer to that question ever possible. You're not going to just own one Blackstone. You're going to come and you're going to buy a small one for your camper. You're going to buy one for your cabin. You're going to buy one that you travel with. You're going to buy one that sets on your patio. And then we come out with a new one that includes an air fryer. And then you got to have French fries with your hamburger. So you sell your old one and you buy a new one from me. So our recurring revenue is called product innovation. And then you hit on the second part of it, the accessories part of it. We absolutely have the best attachment rate for accessories in this industry and maybe in any industry. Most of our end user customers buy between three and seven accessories for their griddle. And then the longer they stay with us as a customer, they continue to come back and buy more accessories. And all of our accessories, again, are driven by what our end users want to use on their griddle. And griddle cooking lends itself to such an awesome array of different accessories because you're cooking different foods. We're not just throwing tools at you and hoping that you buy some of them and they stick. Or we're not selling three-foot spatulas as a Father's Day promotion because it's gimmicky. Our tools are used for specific reasons. You know, we have a crepe kit. You need certain tools to make a crepe on a griddle, and we have those for you. We have a breakfast kit that has a pancake dispenser. We have a hamburger smash kit that works awesome if you want to make smash burgers. We have a taco rack. We have warming racks. We have domes for steaming and melting cheese. And all of these accessories really lend themselves to griddle cooking. And by the way, other people buy them for their traditional gas grills because they're awesome accessories. And then the other thing for recurring revenue that we're getting into is consumables. I don't know if you've seen our spices that we've come out with right now, but we have almost 15 different flavors of spice brands. And 
they're formulated really for griddle cooking and certain foods that you cook on the griddle. Again, we're not just label slapping and throwing stuff on spices just to try to drive revenue. We'll never do that. In addition, we have come out this year with uh, a whole line of sauces. We call it sear and serve. And what we found is if we used a traditional barbecue sauce on a griddle because of a high sugar content, the, the sauce would burn because you know sugary foods burn faster. And if you have a traditional gas grill, most of that stuff drips through onto the, into the flame, so you don't have a problem with it. But on a griddle, you do. So we had to design and come up with and market and manufacture a whole separate line of sauce that works for griddle cooking. And the consumer is loving it and responding to those flavors in a big way. So that's a consumable, and we'll continue to expand into consumables as they make sense. You know, we have hundreds of ideas, but we won't label slap. We just won't do it. Let me put that into the context of computers. What you just described, if you were the CEO of Microsoft, who was on the show a couple weeks ago, you just described a platform, and then you have all these extensions to your platform, and that's how you're going to make your money. So you have a griddle, and then you've got uh, the steaming dome, and you've got the burger smasher. Microsoft or Apple or whoever would make sure that their burger smasher works best on their griddle and everyone else is at a slight disadvantage. And this is a constant conflict in the tech industry. You can't do that, right? It's a big, hot piece of steel and other people can make burger smashers and domes. That seems like a a different challenge than the traditional tech industry, how do you compete with all the other people that want to make griddle accessories and might undercut you in price or might buy the Amazon search terms to make sure they're ahead of you? Because almost everybody else is searching for a lock-in or searching for a moat. And it, that's, it just seems very hard for you to find there beyond branding. Branding is a key part of it without any question. And our customers are very loyal to their brand and they seek out a Blackstone cover and Blackstone tools and accessories And then the other thing really is being driven by innovation and knowing first what the customer's looking for and not just copying second. And yeah, we're going to get copied. We're already copied and knocked off and someone can always build it for cheaper and sell it for less. That's fine. You know, that's a free marketplace that we live in, but it's not a Blackstone. And the consumer has really resonated to this brand and will continue to drive our business because of that. They're loyal to the brand. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year 
at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I really wanted to talk to Roger about the bigger picture, not only for Blackstone, but for his industry. So I asked him about competition, his patents, and the overall market for outdoor cooking as we come out of the pandemic. We also talked about the new electric griddles and how they might protect the company from energy regulation in the future. Yeah. It's funny, Blackstone is a very literal name. The top of the griddle turns black over time. Do you ever get confused for the giant investment banking company that has spent a lot of time marketing itself as Blackstone? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I've sat on airplanes before and I've had on a on a shirt with my Blackstone logo on it. And they, oh, you work for Blackstone? I say, and I know where this is going. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah. Well, what do you do there? Oh, I'm the CEO. And I've had people set up and pay attention to me like never before. So I've played with that a little bit uh, on occasion. But um I mean, you're in Utah. You're right next to Idaho. Did you think about going to Sun Valley and just seeing what could happen for you there? (laughs) Haven't done it yet. But um, yeah, it's not far away. You mentioned competition. There are huge players in the space. You mentioned Weber. But, you know, there's Camp Chef and Cuisinart and all kinds of other companies that are coming out with competitors to you. Is that the market's expanding? Is it you've got to defend it? Is it you're going to do a bunch of patent litigation? How does this work? Well, we definitely will defend our patents, and we've done so successfully now three or four times on our rear grease management system and all the other patents that we have. I have kind of an aggressive attitude on patent and and intellectual property. We spend so much time and hard work and effort and money developing new products. So when people knock me off, it's one of the things that kind of sets me off. So our patent attorneys make a lot of money and will continue to do so. (laughs) But we love innovation, and that's what drives us and motivates us every day is coming out with new items. So far, the industry has kind of knocked us off. You know, like we have a 17-inch. They came out with a 17-inch. We have a 22, a 28, a 30, 36. Now, these sizes aren't magical. It's just what we designed and came up with at first to use, and it's just funny. I think Coco Chanel said it best. If you want to be original, be ready to be copied. And I think that's 100% true for us today. Does that affect your relationship with retailers? I mean, you talked a lot about just educating the brick-and-mortar channel in the beginning. Now you clearly don't have to do that. But other people are probably undercutting you or offering a bigger spiff. Like, how does that, how does that play out for you in your role trying to get more products in the market? Really, what's been the most challenging for us has been the supply chain, especially right now, and just predicting and forecasting and coming up with the right amount of inventory we need to satisfy the demand. It's been really challenging, and we really don't know the answer to that question, quite frankly, because we've never had enough inventory where kind of at the end of our seasonality period, we had too much inventory left on the shelves. We've never had enough. So we don't know how much is really enough, number one. And number two, our, some of our other retailers are picking up some competitive product only because they might think we're more loyal to one retailer versus another, which isn't true. We're, we're trying to satisfy the demand as best as we can with all of our customers. And, you know, as you grow a category and you develop a new niche in the category like griddle cooking, 
Of course, all our other competitors are going to look at that. And at a point in time, we expect most of them to offer griddles uh, to their customers. Are you taking share away from the Webers and the char grillers of the world or people getting two? It's difficult to answer because there's not a lot of good research data in our industry. Some of the sources where we used to get industry information don't exist anymore. And we get bits and pieces and we put it together and try to figure that puzzle out as best as we can. But um, I think pre-COVID, we were starting to take market share away from the traditional gas and charcoal grill industry on one end. And on the other end, the Traegers and the pellet grill guys of the world were taking it away on the other end. And so they were kind of getting squeezed in the middle. But uh, since the pandemic and, and COVID, I think that the pie has gotten bigger for everybody because I have professional relationships with a lot of my competitors and they're very, very good people. And, and right now I know for the last two years, the gas industry has increased in sales. So I think the pie's gotten bigger. People are staying home and they're, and they're cooking more at home and they're doing all those things that help our whole industry. Housing is a big part of us. New housing starts are a big industry stat that we look at and try to stay on top of. That's a positive for us. But Blackstone has been growing, not necessarily because of the pandemic or anything else. We've been experiencing growth because the consumer is learning that cooking on a griddle is really, really fun. And there's so much food you can cook on it. That's, That's really why we're growing. Is that a linear growth curve? This second time you said the pandemic didn't have an effect. No spike at all because of COVID? Well, it definitely was there, but I didn't have inventory to take advantage of it. But I mean, you said 2006, you know, this is a a labor of love. You're putting money into it. You're not getting revenue back to cover your costs. Are are you profitable now? We are. Yeah. And has that, is that a linear curve or is that, was there, have there been any inflection points along the way? No, it's been pretty linear. Um, You know, the bigger you get in revenue, the margins continue to get squeezed. Competition comes in, as you mentioned earlier, and that can put pressure on your margin. Uh, And then just with the raw commodities that have gone up exponentially almost over the last 18 months, that definitely puts pressure on your margin. But we are very profitable as a company. You mentioned shortages. Again, usually in the show, I ask people about chip shortages. I don't think there are no chips in your products yet, I don't think. Well, we actually do have chips. We have a new electric griddle, and we just came out with the 17-inch earlier this year, and we're now just barely shipping the 22-inch electric griddle. And they both have chips, and we've definitely been affected by the chip shortage on those two items. What was the genesis of that idea, and what were the blockers along the way? Well, the genesis of the idea is we wanted to be the first company to introduce an outdoor, indoor electric griddle. So you can use it outdoors. It's designed to stay outdoors if you want it to. And and you can take it inside and put it on the countertop in the house and cook on it. Really inside the house right now, the only really offerings you have are extremely cheap electric griddles that you buy at discount retail. There's really not a good electric indoor griddle, in my opinion, until we came out with ours. And it's a completely different demographic almost. It's sleek, it's very contemporary looking, it has an awesome electronics panel on it with LED readouts and it's gorgeous. So it's easy and you can set temperature and you can see what temperature you set it to. So somebody who's really precise in cooking and they wanna cook a pancake at 300 and 
52 degrees because they think that's the best pancake, they can do that on our, <laughs> on our E-series. So that was kind of the genesis behind it. But just in the long run, you know, I worry a little bit about the future of using propane, potentially. And there could be some states who start coming out with green initiatives where charcoal and smoke and even potentially propane may be viewed negatively. And so I want to be in a position where it doesn't matter how I heat my griddle plate up. I just need it to get hot so right. I can cook food. And that, that's right. really kind of the initiative behind the electric series. You mentioned COVID production delays. You mentioned other kinds of delays. What are your biggest choke points? Where, where do you see the need for scale where you can't get it yet? And where do you see the need for um, additional supply where you can't get it yet? Just overall production, we need to increase that. We, our main factory is in China. And it is an extremely large facility. And when I went there in 2014 for the first time, and they were just finishing the, the uh, manufacturing of this facility, I thought I could give them maybe two weeks production a year because this facility was so big. But now we filled it up and we need more capacity than they can give us. They've added on to the factory and built multiple more buildings and, and production lines and powder coat lines and fabricating lines. So they'll catch up. But we're going to diversify a little bit outside of mainland China. I think that's pretty common for my industry. We're looking at Vietnam and some other countries in Asia. And we're also looking at the United States. And as we start introducing product that sells at higher retail price points, that lends itself to you know some manufacturing in the U.S. that I'm actually quite excited about and looking forward to. What's the higher price point you need to hit to support manufacturing in the United States? Well, it's, that's interesting because if a factory has enough automation with their equipment, I, I can get to some retail price points probably in the $700 price point and up. So that, you know, that's coming down before it was $1,500 and up, but it, it's definitely coming down right now. Put that in context for me. What's your average retail price right now? Probably $400, $500. That indicates to me you're selling a lot of the, I have a 36 inch pro series, which I think I bought for $500. So you're already selling at the high end of your product line mostly. That's our main sweet spot right in that two to $500 range right now as of today. But we'll be introducing, we are introducing some higher price points and we even have some items that retail for a thousand bucks right now. And we will see more of a push in that direction for sure. Two reasons, one, the consumer wants more features on it. Like I mentioned, they want more of a patio-looking griddle. Mom likes it with a hood and with a cart, so she doesn't see the griddle when it's not in use and the propane tank. And then second, just prettier, better, and because of supply chain issues and cost increases, our, our retail price points will be increasing over the next 12 months. You mentioned Traeger and some of the other companies that are like, you got to smoke your food over wood pellets, and that's the way to go. And that is an explosive category as well. You mentioned Weber's getting squeezed on both sides, but do you feel the pressure from that category? I mean, the, the Traeger products are really expensive. And so, like, people buy a Traeger, and then they want to do everything on them. And you're selling them a very different way of cooking. Like, are they your competitors? Are they more category expanders? How, how does that work in your mind? On one hand, I look at anybody as my competitor because we all live on a budget and we all, we all have only so much money to spend. 
And when it's time to budget for, uh, you know, an outdoor appliance, I got 800 bucks or 500 bucks or 300 bucks. What am I going to go spend it on? So in a sense, everybody's my competitor. But beyond that, beyond the budgetary part of it, when you get to how I want to cook and what I want to cook, then who's my competitor? And Traeger, we really look at pellet grilling or charcoal grilling, smoking the food like a green egg or even an offset smoker, though, some of those kinds of products as a style of cooking food and a method of cooking food. And it's awesome. A pork shoulder out of a Traeger or a brisket, it tastes phenomenal, but it could take six to 14 hours of cooking time. We look at smoking food as more of an event that happens maybe once a month or maybe once a week if you're a real dedicated cook. Now, to your other point, the consumer is absolutely, in, in our opinions, and it's definitely a trend, and this is a wonderful trend for us, they're spending more time in the backyard and they're paying a lot of attention to what they cook and how they can cook it. So it's not uncommon at all for the consumers now to have multiple units of cooking appliances on the backyard for different reasons, as we just mentioned. Do you think about expanding into those other categories? Have you thought about building a smoker or anything like that? Um Yes. And it would, again, it would have been really easy for us to do. We've had a lot of our customers request that we have a Blackstone pellet grill. But again, we're really disciplined. And, and uh, it's hard for me because I'm such an entrepreneur. It's, you know, saying no is a really challenging thing for me to do. But I'm not going to put my name just on a quote unquote knockoff pellet grill. I won't do it. If we come out with a pellet grill, there'll be a very specific reason why we do and it will be a, call it a Blackstone reason why we do it. But yeah, we think about it every day. We look at product expansion. We, we look at the category. We look at the way people cook food. But that will definitely be driven by what does my end user customer want from us. One of the things that's really interesting that's happening in the industry right now is Traeger, we've mentioned several times, very popular. They have a lot of computer stuff going on with their pellet smokers, right? There's an app, there's Bluetooth. You can monitor it from five states away if you want to with some of them. Weber came out with similar features. That product was a, a bust, which is really funny to me, right? I mean, the, at the end of the day, you're just lighting a fire and putting some food over it and cooking it. But because Traeger was a ground up product, they integrated the computer stuff from the beginning. This is just a classic disruption story to me as told through charcoal grills or pellet grills or what have you. Do you see that same kind of trend that the bigger companies just can't see what you see, that they haven't architected their companies around the product. And so they're going to misfire like that. It's the, it's like a classic tech company story to me. It's IBM missed the PC until the PC companies came out. Weber missed computerized smoking until Traeger came out. What's the thing that you see that they're going to miss? Hmm. It's an interesting question. Well, you know, it makes sense on a pellet grill because you're cooking over such a long period of time. You don't want to go out and quote unquote tend to the fire as often as you might need to if you didn't have a way to monitor what was going on. Temperature, you know, are you getting low on pellets, all those kind of things that they can monitor. If it makes sense for us to have some kind of app that would help you cook better on the griddle, we would definitely come out with that. We haven't thought of what that is yet because you cook so fast on a griddle. You know, in 15 minutes, you're done. You're not going to 
throw some food on the grill and walk in the house and start watching the game and get beeped on your phone to go out and flip the steaks or something. It just doesn't make sense. I don't know the answer to that question, what they're going to miss next, or it's, that's a hard question for me to answer. Again, your first sale is 2006. It's 2021. You've been on a long journey. You have an explosive amount of growth and awareness. What's next for Blackstone? Well, we're going to continue. That's, that's a really fun question for me, and I have to check myself so I don't give away all the competitive secrets that we're working on. Oh, come on. It's friends. Yeah. But we, what's in our development pipeline is, is freaking awesome. It keeps me awake at night, the excitement and the different product lines that we're going to come out with, the expansion of our product, different retail price points, different features, you know, we were the first guys to put a deep fat fryer on a product that went outside. And then we came out with an air fryer the next year. And now we've come out with electric griddles. That is not even the tip of the tip of the iceberg of what we've got in the pipeline. So, you know, without without tipping my hat too far, you will see a tremendous amount of new product that comes out that will come out over the next year to five years. Our development pipeline is very full. Do you think that, uh, as we talked about, you're doing more social media marketing, you're doing a little bit of direct-to-consumer. Do you think you're going to bring that relationship to all of your new products closer to you and do more internet marketing, or are you going to remain pretty broadly distributed? I'll I'll remain broadly distributed, but the social media part of it and the the direct-to-the-consumer, I'm going to let the uh, natural course take place. In other words, in my industry, if 15% is direct-to-the-consumer, I'm not quoting a number, just pulling one out. But if 15% is direct to the consumer and over time that goes to 40% direct to the consumer, I'll follow that trend. But I I don't necessarily see myself driving that trend and saying, we're going to end our relationships with our retailers and go direct to consumer only. I'm not doing that at all. I love my relationships with my retail customers. They've been awesome partners. They've been really, really good to us. That's great. Well, Roger, thank you so much for coming on Decoder. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. When we put out that Wi-Fi controlled smoker griddle combo, I expect an exclusive on The Verge. You got a deal. Thank you again to Roger Dolly for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I would also love five-star rating in Apple Podcasts, if you would be so kind. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone, Liam James, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, 
Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.